1: Listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden, and I'm Kevin McLenathan.
0: Welcome to the All Villains All the Time episode of the show.
1: We have everything you need on this podcast from snarling demons to Disney baddies. Part of a balanced villainous breakfast, of course. First up,
0: we're going to be talking about the latest in a long line of Disney reinventing some of its classic characters. That would be Joe Roning's Maleficent Mistress
1: of Evil. And then we go all the way back to 1973 for a very Halloween retro review. We're going to be looking at William Friedkin's The
0: Exorcist. Polish up your horns as we take a deep dive into the dark side on this episode of seeing and believing
2: i remember the story of a baby a baby cursed to sleep and never wake up really who would do such a terrible thing to an innocent child well there are many who prey on the innocent i'm sure your kind would agree What do you mean, my kind? She means humans. There are fairies missing from the moors. What I'm missing
1: is some wine.
2: Stolen by human poachers.
1: That's the first I've heard of it.
2: Someone gave the
1: order. We are here with episode 222 of Seeing and Believing, and this is a great Halloween-style episode. I know we still have a little ways to go before we reach october 31st but we're really just getting people in the spirit right now kevin that's that's what we do at Seeing and believing
0: yeah you know you gotta start early you know slowly ramp up to it you don't want to just have one day be normal and the next day be halloween you
1: gotta kind of you work your way up to it yeah no that's exactly true and we were talking about doing a a retro review. And sometimes we do that during Halloween. And I know at least a couple of years uh, we've chosen films for each other. So I've chosen a film that you haven't seen that was a horror film, and then you watch it, we talk about it, and then you choose one for me. This year, because of the full schedule, just the fall schedule, we decided to condense it down to one. And I'll just kind of let our listeners know from the beginning, neither of us have watched The Exorcist or had watched The Exorcist before this podcast. So you're going to get our fresh off the press thoughts about the 1973 film, The Exorcist. Yeah, it's
0: one that I've, that's a film I've been regarding with trepidation for a long time. So it was good to kind of have finally the nudge I needed to, to take the plunge and, and fill in that gap in my knowledge. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to talking about it.
1: Yeah, and you know, I'm I, I don't ever get scared of anything. Um, but if I did get scared of anything, I would have been scared to watch this movie and maybe that's why I didn't, you know, watch it before. But but it's not really, it's just I didn't want to. Um <laughs> You were no, you weren't afraid at all. No, 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 just didn't Man didn't. Without Fear. It wasn't cool, so uh didn't do it. <laughs> all the other kids were weren't doing it. So we are gonna jump, however, first into our review of Maleficent Mistress of Evil. Now this is a film directed by Yoshim Roning and Kevin, you offered a different pronunciation at the beginning of the episode. I am giving a different perspective. We could both be wrong. Uh, but this is a film indeed, uh, directed by Roning. And I want to give you kind of the official synopsis. It's a sequel to the 2014 Maleficent. Maleficent, played once again by Angelina Jolie and her goddaughter, Aurora, played by Elle Fanning, begin to question the complex family ties that bind them as they are pulled in different directions by impending nuptials, unexpected allies, and dark new forces at play. Kevin, we're just going to jump into this really, really quick and get into our thoughts on the film. And I, I wanted to ask you this after I watched the movie. 2014 Maleficent doesn't seem like a film you would make a sequel to, and yet this has been done. Do you think there's enough story in this sequel to warrant this sequel?
0: <laughs> you know, it, it's funny. I I might answer that by saying that there's almost too much story in this movie toward the sequel, and by that I mean there's a lot of really intriguing ideas that Roning and his writers, uh, Micah Fitzerman Blue, Noah Harpster, and Linda Wolverton throw out over the course of of the sequel. There's themes of, uh, who, who writes the narratives of history, you know, who, who has the privileged position to sort of define what the, the narrative of the past has been. There's themes, uh, involving warfare and, uh, oppression and colonization and just this idea of two, two races locked in, in, in a struggle for what they think is their very survival. There's, uh, issues of family about, for what it means to give up one's uh, son or daughter in marriage to another and sort of have two families meld together and how even parenthood and particularly motherhood is defined, all of those ideas are kind of knocking around in this movie. And I'll, I'll give it this. It's a lot of intriguing stuff that's going on in here. I think it ends up being a little too overstuffed for its own good, I guess. There's so much going on that the movie doesn't really have the space to really drill down deep into any one of the themes and really extract something that is truly thoughtful and and provocative. Um, But there is definitely a lot going on there and I appreciated that about it, even though I
1: think it kind of fumbles the ball in the end. I'm curious to know what you thought, though. Yeah, fumbles the ball in the end is a great way to to describe what happens because there are some fun ideas and I I kind of liked it when this movie got weird. So at the beginning, this film sort of feels like a fantasy laden father of the bride meet the parents and you get Maleficent giving her goddaughter away and she's meeting her goddaughter's fiance's parents. And I don't know, that's just kind of fun because it's, it's this Disney villain doing something very normal and i'm like okay th- that's that's really fascinating and then you talked about some of the ideas about um poaching and we even get into some you know ideas about genocide which is kind of wild it gets kind of dark uh, but then the end of the film just becomes a a fight fest for the most part i i will say this I thought it was a stroke of genius redeeming Maleficent at the end of the first film. And that twist kind of took me by surprise because you almost expect that film to be her origin story and she, you know, this is why she turns bad, blah blah blah. And she doesn't. And then this film opens with a very provocative idea and it's who gets to tell the stories? Who gets to pass on tradition? And we learn that Maleficent's reputation has not changed. And and that's fascinating. So as much as I think this film uh, overall is pretty weak, I do appreciate some of the stuff kind of going on. And, and, and I wonder what it would take for a really good screenwriter to just dive into those things and to hammer some stuff out and give it a better third act, uh, a third act that maybe is a bit smaller and really kind of emphasizes the ideas that are mentioned in the first part of the movie.
0: Yeah, that that third act is rushed. For sure, and part of it is just a function of, again, this this Disney impulse to have a giant action climax that I will say is is very thrilling to watch. Uh, Roning does a very good job of of filming it uh, very, very competently, very exciting. He manages to juggle various theaters of action in a way that, for the most part, work for me. But the resolution to that big action scene is so rushed, it's almost comical. So that's a problem. I would say also, on another structural note, I think it's a problem that this movie maybe tips its hand a little bit too soon as far as who we should be rooting for and whom we should be rooting against. It's pretty much clear from the get-go that uh, we are sympathizing with Maleficent and Aurora against Aurora's prospective in-laws, shall we say. And it's not so much that that's a, a bad conflict to set up. It's more that because this is made so clear almost from the beginning there's not really a whole lot of tension that could be mined out of the presence of wondering when Maleficent finally you know gives in a little bit to her her worst tendencies uh and kind of kicks off the larger conflict that that ends up culminating in that gigantic action climax. There's not a whole lot of tension leading up to that, because you already kind of know that this person is m- more or less a- unambiguously evil, and this person is more or less good with maybe a few serious flaws. And that, it's a little bit disappointing. It's a missed opportunity, I guess, where the movie could have really dug into, well, what does it mean to be ter- uh, labeled as evil? I mean, that's in the title of the movie itself, Maleficent Mistress of Evil, and yet, it doesn't really seem like the movie is all that interesting in probing at the irony of that title. Like you said, uh, the end of the second movie, Posits Maleficent is sort of a, a, a sympathetic figure, and yet she's still thought of as evil in this movie. But there's not really—the the, the film doesn't spend a whole lot of time digging into, well, why is she still regarded that way? What reason do people have— to distrust her it's gestured at but it's not explored in full and that's a missed opportunity along with those other things that i mentioned
1: yeah i think the the first film is is mostly forgettable and i, I don't mean it's bad it, it, it just it is forgettable and i think at the end you're it's it's a shock it's a surprise because we get this sort of reimagining and here like you mentioned we don't ever think that she's going to become a villain you know this is never oh this is actually her prequel story this is how she becomes you know who she is or who we know her to be and that definitely hurts the film uh, a bit i i think the cgi laden visuals here are are kind of hit or miss uh, some work really well there's one towards the middle part of the movie and Maleficent is walking down this, it's almost like a light tunnel that that looks like it's lined with hair or straw. And so some of it is, is, is fun and it's visually arresting. Uh, you get another scene where a bunch of the fairy type creatures are going to a wedding and they're all sitting on, on one side just kind of waiting for the wedding to begin. And it, it's just kind of fun. It's imaginative. And then there are other shots that just don't really hit the mark. They seem too untethered from reality, if that if that makes a sense. Uh, makes sense. Uh, so I, I think visually uh, and, and in terms of action, Ronin has talent, and he shows some of that talent. But then it it also gets away from him at times. Yeah, um, I think you're right on about the the CGI being.
0: I don't know there. It works okay. It's not really my favorite thing about this film. I think my favorite thing really begins and ends with Angelina Jolie herself as Maleficent. I yeah. think she's really good in the in the first movie and in this movie as well. Just she has this this kind of Cheshire Cat grin that Maleficent has that's, you know, it's very wide and it's very, you know, she's got those pearly whites, but the way that she shapes her mouth and the way that the makeup artists have uh shaped her cheekbones give it this really give her this menacing aspect even when she's trying to be agreeable or charming and that's a lot of fun and it's a lot of fun to watch Jolie kind of walk that tightrope between being a little scary but not so scary that we're going to forget that you know she's kind of our our point of view character for this film. She's She plays a lot of notes in this movie, too. Maybe even more than she had to do in the first film, and I appreciate that about, about her performance. I think that the film kind of gets in its own way a little bit. It wants to have lots of spectacle to it. There's a entire section of the film devoted to, um, and this was in the trailer, so it's not really a spoiler, um, Luftham finding her own kind and sort of Discovering what their world is like, what their culture is like, and feeling for the first time a sense of belonging that she didn't have before. And that's a very compelling thread to follow, but it's overwhelmed a little bit by kind of the the almost... Uh, James Cameron's avatar kind of CGI trappings <laughs> and, you know, technological wizardry going on in, in that scene that it, it's it's more than it needs, I guess. And maybe that's kind of what I would say about the film as a whole is there's lots of kernels of interesting stuff, but it's just it's more than it needs to be effective. It's, it's too much of a good thing, maybe.
1: Yeah, I, I echo you in that. Angelina Jolie is is really great here and she can be kind of scary at times she can kind of open up her heart at times and then at times she definitely plays along with the jokes and I think that helps the film as it kind of moves along and I think Jolie is one of those performers who's very very good I think most people judge her I, I don't even want to say judge her, but, um, her looks, that's primarily how people uh, see her. But I think she, she is really great when she's given, uh, a good role to chew on. And I think this is a good role for, her, for her. I wish the movie were better, but it's, it's always kind of nice to see her. Elle Fanning, I think, is pretty good. And then, um, she has a one-note performance, but I, I'd like to see Michelle Pfeiffer and more stuff. And I think she's fine here. Um, like you mentioned, the film does kind of trip over itself when it's, okay, Maleficent is going to be good and this character is going to be bad. And that's kind of it. And I would have liked some more mystery and that would have opened up the performances a little bit more. I was also thinking about this too, Kevin. And I wanted to ask you, we, uh, you're especially, are, are you a fan of J.R.R. Tolkien? And he has written, as well as C.S. Lewis, about fairy stories and what makes fairy tales meaningful and the deeper myths that these stories point, point to. And I wanted to ask you, were you thinking about that when you watched this movie? And do you think that this movie even had a maybe a face turned towards that angle uh, that Tolkien's talking about? Or was it just too much uh, for it to be reflectant of anything deeper
0: hmm yeah (laughs) it's interesting that you bring that up because that's something that overall has made me uneasy about disney's overall project of you know remaking or at least revisiting its classic fairy tales and you know updating them for 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 a more modern age because i think a casualty of that approach is that these tales lose the essential simplicity that makes them compelling as as fairy tales as stories um and you also kind of lose a sense of the the elemental perspective of good and evil that that kind of simplicity provides so the original sleeping beauty of course you know maleficent's not a complex character none of the characters are are complex, and yet what's so compelling about it is just seeing the um, the contrast between light and dark and good and evil thrown into such sharp relief that it just is burned into your consciousness in a way that something like this film, for all of its complexity and interest in truly uh, thought-provoking themes, doesn't quite reach. So. And I think there's a possible criticism to be made that it might be even a little bit irresponsible to evoke things like genocide and uh, the horrors of war and evil with a capital E in a movie that still kind of wants to retreat behind the happily ever after ending at the end. I'm not sure that those two things jibe really well and either can be good but i i think trying to tell one kind of story and then put the veneer of a fairy tale on it doesn't work all that well uh, and i think that this sequel is
1: kind of a case study in how that tends to fall on its face at the end yeah no that's a great answer i i I asked you, I'm guilty of asking you a question that I don't think I have an answer for, but I think that's a great explanation, and there definitely seemed to be something kind of missing, and maybe I'm thinking about it because I finally finished reading The Lord of the Rings. I read The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Part of it Uh was because you always talk about it so much, and I've, I've always wanted to, and so that's kind of, you know. Rolling around in my, my brain right now. Listeners, that is our review of Maleficent, Mistress of Evil. If you have seen the film, make sure to let us know what you think. Maybe you thought it was good, maybe bad, maybe you kind of had a mixed reaction like Kevin and I did. Make sure to tweet us at C Believe Pod, at C Pod. You can also email us seeing and believing, C-A-P-C, at gmail.com. Listeners, we very much appreciate all that you've done to support us via our Patreon page. It's really easy to do, and we have a number of levels of donation. And when you support us, we give you perks, lots of fun stuff, so make sure to do that. Kevin, one of my favorite levels is the... What can you buy for five dollar level on Patreon? I think it's I think it's just fantastic, and I wanted to ask you, what could you buy for five bucks? Well, there's an amusing part in the new Maleficent movie where
0: Aurora kind of they, tries to find a solution to the the problem of Maleficent's horns. You know, they're scary to the humans. So when they go to have dinner with the in laws, she tries to give Maleficent this veil to put over her horns to cover them and make them more palatable. And, you know, if you are the sort of person who maybe doesn't have horns but has an unsightly head, maybe some weird bumps on your scalp or a bad haircut, $5 would buy you certain kinds of customizable coverings to distract from that fact. So maybe just a bunch of googly eyes that you can stick onto your head or, you know, maybe just a a biker kerchief Or, you know, a a flag from the country of your choice. All these things are possible and uh, will perhaps make you feel a little bit less self-conscious about any odd, unsightly and or horn-shaped things you've got going on up there.
1: You know, Kevin, I wish I could have had that available to me whenever I was in middle school. Definitely would have used it each and every day. Only five bucks. All the middle school uh, (laughs) kids out there, all the babies out there who are listening – Uh, this is available to you if maybe you're going through some, some awkward Mm. years, you know? Yeah.
0: Middle school kids, they, they can be so cruel, Wade. I'm so (laughs) sorry that you, you went through, you went through that crucible, but here you are today, a a stronger person for it, perhaps.
1: Yeah. You know, I just, every week I email my middle school bullies with a link to seeing and believing and, and it just says (laughs) how you like me now. That's all it says. Uh, A fitting punishment indeed. (laughs) Listeners, you can support us with a $5 donation each month by going to patreon.com forward slash sing underscore believing underscore podcast. Make sure to do that. We very much appreciate it.
0: Yeah, we also appreciate any support you can throw the way of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. You do that, of course, by becoming a member of Christ and Pop Culture. That is also $5 a month and it gets you access to members-only offerings as well as our members-only forum on Facebook. When you do support the Christ in Pop Culture Podcast Network. You don't just support seeing and believing, though. You also support our sister podcast, Persuasion, where every week Hannah Anderson and Aaron Straza get together to discuss a certain theme. And the theme of this season of Persuasion, Wade, is about the creative process and specifically about um, the cry for authenticity and just sort of probing the intersection of those two subjects. And this latest episode, episode 175 for them, is an especially big deal because they have an interview with uh, the well-known recording artist Sarah Groves on the show. I don't know if anyone out there in Seeing Believing Land is a gr- big Groves fan, but they've got her on the show. They have the great conversation about her own approach to her creative process and her thoughts on authenticity in that context so it's a great conversation you should you should all check it out if you haven't already
1: yeah i would encourage people to definitely do that because it's a fantastic podcast we did get some feedback kevin on twitter and it just seems like Listeners won't let me not see a specific (laughs) film. So Christian, what film is that? (laughs) Christian Hammaker uh, tweeted us and he said, in preparation for Parasite, watched Bong's memories of murder last night, spurred by Sea Belief Pod recommendation. Their comparison to Zodiac, a big compliment is apt. Well, Mm -hmm. I keep, people keep pushing me, pushing me to do that. The only problem with this tweet is Christians, Profile picture is of the Washington Nationals. Uh, they are playing the Houston Astros in the World Series. So I'm going to take all of that with oh. a grain of salt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a big tactical error there from Christian,
0: <laughs> imploring you to, to better yourself in the era of cinema knowledge while championing... The, te- the, ba- the baseball team that's anathema to
1: you. Mm-hmm. I get it, Wade, but I don't pretend to understand. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, like we mentioned before, we'd love to get your thoughts. Whether you are a baseball fan, whether you are an Astros fan, or whether you're just wrong, who knows? We would love to get those. Tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod, or email us and Believing CAPC at gmail.com. Thank you.
2: Look, I'm only against the possibility of doing your daughter more harm than good. Nothing you could do could make it any worse. I can't do it. I need evidence that the church would accept his signs of possession. Like what? Like her speaking in a language she's never known or studied. What else? I don't know. I'd have to look it up. I thought you were supposed to be an expert. There are no experts. You probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. Now, if you've seen as many psychotics as I have, you'd realize that's the same thing as saying you're Napoleon Bonaparte. You asked me what I think is best for your daughter. Six months under observation in the best hospital you can find.
0: Welcome back to the second half of our show. My head has been twisted around 180 degrees for the segment, Wade. So I, I'm I'm really hoping that our producer Jonathan will be able to take care of any <laughs> resulting sound
1: issues during his editing of this sound file. <laughs> you're you if, if it feels distance, it, it's because yeah the the sound is coming out. Of the backside of your body instead right. of, yeah, that, yeah. Well, hopefully Jonathan can do it because he can work magic on this entire podcast.
0: <laughs> well, well, he might have to considering that my head is now facing directly away from the mic, whereas before, you know, it was right in front of me. So, but we'll just run with it. We'll do what we can. Um, we are going to be talking about a very famous film on this segment of the show, Ever since its release in 1973, William Friedkin's The Exorcist has had this reputation as one of the most harrowing horror films of all time. Its story of young Reagan, played by Linda Blair in an Oscar-nominated role, being possessed by a demon and of the priest who must try to save her while struggling with his own, less literal demons, has been alternately praised and shunned by religious audiences as either a no-holds-barred depiction of true spiritual evil and God's ultimate sovereignty, or else a depraved wallow whose no-holds-barred depictions carry spiritual dangers of their own." Given the Halloween season and our stated mission on the show of Searching for the Sacred on screen, Wade, it was probably only a matter of time before we discussed William Friedkin's horror classic. But we're going to finally do that now. So to get us started, I'm curious to know, since this was the first time for both of us, I I was wanting to know what your expectations were going into this movie what had you heard about it what were you expecting about it going into the film and on the other
1: side how did your (laughs) expectations measure up to the real thing yeah you know i think my knowledge of the film for the most part growing up was my mom saw it whenever it was released in theaters and it was she just found it to be very disturbing and so it was like you know this is it's a just a disturbing movie. So never watched it growing up, and then uh, like I mentioned, uh, not scared of it. Just didn't want to do it until uh, now. <laughs> um, but I was I was a little apprehensive about it because as a Christian, I've mentioned this before. We know that the supernatural does exist, and so yeah, that stuff happens. Uh, maybe not in this way, but but things like this do happen. And um, I also read this this really great piece by Martin Wendell Jones on ChristandPopCulture Uh It's titled "I Finally Made Myself Watch The Exorcist and I Did Not Leave Without Hope." And so when I read that, I kind of was I to myself okay, like I I do you know I need to watch this because there's there's something kind of deeper going on. And you know after seeing it, I I, I think it is a little freaky. It is a little scary. Um, and I I walked away realizing that it that it isn't just like like Martin said it isn't just darkness but there is there are glimmers of hope and maybe we can jump into those but um, yeah that's kind of the general overall thoughts what about you Kevin so this is a movie that i have to confess
0: i've avoided for a really long time i i go back to a time when i was in college and you know this was back before i really had my cinematic horizons expanded. So I was was still a little bit sheltered as as far as horror movies go. And I remember having a conversation with a friend who had seen it, and he described uh, probably what is still the most blasphemous scene in the movie uh, involving uh, Linda Blair's character and a crucifix. And I remember after hearing the description of that, I was just so disturbed by it and so not wanting to see that depicted on screen that i kind of almost made a vow to myself that i would never watch this movie that was just probably (laughs) not for me um and that mostly stayed with me even after i kind of grew to love movies and even horror movies but i i kind of still shied away from the film i wasn't so much worried that it was going to spiritually corrupt me but just it seemed like it maybe wasn't the most edifying thing for me so I just sort of passed on it but I decided you know with this show coming up I was going to take the plunge and I did and what was most surprising to me about the film is I didn't really find it all that scary and I'm really interested to talk about this with you Wade uh, and see what you thought because it does have this outsized reputation as just this monumentally disturbing, frightening experience. And yet, while I was watching it, I found myself really appreciating a lot of what's in it, but not really being, not having the sort of, you know, fingernails digging into my palms, edge of my seat, hiding my eyes kind of experience that I've had with other horror films. So, that was a little bit of a surprise to me. It was not as, it was neither as spiritually disturbing as something like the witch was. And it wasn't as viscerally terrifying to me as something like alien or the thing was. So that's kind of where I am right now, but I'm curious to know how that struck you on, on this initial viewing.
1: Yeah. So I mentioned it, it is freaky. It is scary. It's not, you know, I don't think anywhere close to the scariest movie that I, that I have seen. Um, And I was thinking about that, and I, I think for me personally, and maybe it's different for you, I think because I've watched The Witch and because I've seen Sinister and some other movies like that, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, that this wasn't a, it wasn't a shock to me because I had inoculated myself previously. If I would have watched this in high school, or the early years of uh, college, I, I think it. I think it would have been. And so for me, I, th- I think probably just seeing so much, and then even realizing that there are certain films influenced by The Exorcist. Um, but but yeah, I mean, it's 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 a good point, and it it definitely wasn't as scary as I thought it would be. And I don't mean to say that as like oh, I you know I don't get scared very easily because. I get scared during movies all the time, Um, but but this one um, I I think it's just because I've seen other stuff kind of like it, and and perhaps that's the reason why.
0: Yeah, for me, it I think it it might be partly familiarity breeds contempt, right? You know, the fact that even if you even though I hadn't seen the film in its entirety before, you know, everyone's seen the. The sequence where, uh, Regan's head, you know, twists all the way, you know, does a full 360 on her shoulders where, you know, she spits up that, that disgusting, you know, green vomit stuff. Like th- these are things that have been seen in clip form, like at the Oscar ceremony, you know, so much that it's easy to sort of have been numb to them a little bit because of that exposure so that's certainly part of it I also think though that it might be that Friedkin doesn't really he he goes a little bit overboard I think with the makeup effects here he there's a certain point while watching this film where it feels a little bit too much like I'm watching a a, a, like a, a, a actor wearing a scary Halloween mask sort of that kind of effect where what's happening is on screen is kind of disturbing, but the grotesquery of it, the sheer, the sheer scale of it is so much that it's hard for me to be drawn into it and take it seriously. If that makes sense, it's as if, you know, the film begins at a zero and Regan's just a, a normal girl. And Fregan ramps up pretty quickly to the you know speaking in uh, a different voice in that horrible gravelly voice and having those those contact lenses in in her eyes and yeah having the cuts on her body like that that's ramped up to so quickly that I don't know that the film really gives you enough space to fully appreciate maybe the spiritual horror of what's happening to to Regan herself the The scariest parts of this film, I guess for me, were the parts where, with Ellen Burstyn, the mother character, just trying to find help for her daughter and being... Confronted by the fact that nobody knows how to help her. It's a little bit like Rosemary's baby. The idea that she's almost all alone in the world and there's nobody who's kind of on her side who knows what she's, what she and Regan are going through. And that was really compelling. The creature feature stuff with all the, the more loud in your face horror elements, I just, they weren't as effective to me. And I think it's partly because
1: Friedkin just hits them too hard instead of maybe going for a subtler touch. Yeah, I, I think the scariest parts to me are when the film kind of digs into the nature of evil and not so much the the shocking images. And so when uh, Regan is talking to Jason Miller's character, the priest, and she begins to talk about how he left his mother to die alone and just, just begins to lie to him, to manipulate him, that – was more frightening to me because it, it seemed to describe evil that, that wasn't just localized. It's not just, okay, it's happening right here in front of me. This, this girl has a demon, but evil that's kind of all around and evil that has knowledge of things that, uh, we maybe don't think it has knowledge of. And so when the film kind of digs into that, I, I think it, it does a fantastic, uh, a fantastic job. And I also appreciated this in terms of themes, this idea of um, a secularized society and this loss of belief in the supernatural. And if if that was a hot topic back then, it's even more of a hot topic right now. The idea that no one in this movie wants to admit that she has a demon, that there's always some sort of explanation for it. And when the doctors do suggest an exorcism, it's basically like, oh, it's not because there's a demon, but your daughter believes there's a demon. If you do an exorcism, then it, you know, she'll, she'll think that it's left. It's gone. And I, I found that to be just kind of a powerful point of in our world, in Western society, we have this closed box mentality of, okay, uh evil is just people doing bad things and that's kind of it and there's no sort of supernatural uh, beings that are guiding things along and it, this movie highlights that no like there there's a war going on there's spiritual warfare that's happening and something that we learn about you know in in the bible when we study the bible and uh, there are things happening that we cannot see and our society doesn't always want to acknowledge that partly because of fear, and because then the doctors are outside, it's outside of their control. They can't treat it. And I thought that theme was really strong. And so when the movie digs into th- those types of items, I think it's great. When it just gets kind of like spooky and weird, some of it, it works fine, but it's definitely less effective. Yeah,
0: I, I, I don't mean to say that the, the film is actively bad as horror, it's more that yeah, I just have some quibbles with the execution there. But I do think that the film is at its most effective when it really is kind of digging into what it means for the spiritual to be almost an inextricable part of life. And when the other characters in this film attempt to confront this this phenomenon, this possession... Without taking that into account, it's not just ineffectual, it's it's somehow disturbing that they would, you know, see this, this young girl who is speaking with a voice that's not her own and having, you know, moving a bed around and doing all these things that are clearly not normal. The fact that they would then coolly suggest that, you know, it's all psychosomatic, it's in her head, maybe we should just take another spinal tap— That's truly horrifying, and I think that that's where you really see uh, the influence of the the screenwriter and the the writer of the book on which the film is based, William Peter Blatty, who himself was a a very uh, committed Catholic and very intentionally built this story in such a way where that spiritual element comes to the fore, not just as window dressing for a for a spooky Halloween story, but it's something that takes its spiritual evil seriously and also posits the need to, for its characters to take it seriously and for its characters to posit something else spiritual in opposition to that evil. And I think that that's an integral part to why maybe this film has persisted as more than just a kind of a, a creature feature or you know a demon feature i guess and has become something more enduring because it does have that essential seriousness that other horror films you know as effective as they might be do lack
1: yeah and i think to the technical aspects of the film are are mostly pretty good i do think the movie kind of like you mentioned ramps up the action really quick with uh with the daughter and then there's the whole question of, well, would the Catholic Church approve of an exorcism? And that happens really quick, quickly. That's resolved very, very quickly. But I do appreciate how the movie jumps from scene to scene. And so you'll get this kind of, kind of horrifying moment and then you'll get a quick cut. And sometimes if, if, there is a loud noise happening on the first scene. The second scene will cut to silence. Uh, there's, there's one that's very effective at where the, one of the priests talks about, uh, doubting his faith. And he says, I think I lost my faith, John. And the shot immediately cuts to this quiet, deserted neighborhood as, as the wind blows. And that works like gangbusters. There are other moments when it happens in reverse. You get a quiet shot. And it cuts to a very loud shot. And I, I didn't feel like it was just kind of a scare tactic to make us jump. But it's really kind of pushing us around, um, n- fragmenting the film like, like the mother uh, would be fragmented when she's trying to figure out, get a handle on, on what's going on. So I do appreciate that. And then also, the film begins in northern Iraq, and that is just – it just shot so well. There's there's something about that scene that seems to suggest that what we're dealing with is this ancient evil, something that's 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 very very old. And part of that is because it is shot um, partially at a, an archaeological ruin. So I, I think that Friedkin does a really just kind of good job of editing this movie together and and even shooting this movie, and then just employing some of these. These I don't need to say techniques that are familiar to the 1970s. These kind of slow zooms and using that to his advantage, and I think it, for the most part it works well. And that editing scheme is employed with a very specific purpose. It's not just
0: to create a jarring effect. It's also meant to suggest the the fact that this the spiritual horror and mundane reality you know bump right up against each other. There's no there's no neat sort of dividing line where, you know, this is the spiritual warfare part of the movie and this is the part where Father Karras goes home and gets drunk because he's sad over the passing of, of his mother. Those things are both right next to each other and are related to each other. We, as we come to find out in that horrible scene where the demon inside Regan tells him that his mother is there, in there with the devil, you know, like that she's in hell and that she is suffering horribly. And that's just, Friedkin has up to that point done so well in juxtaposing the spiritual and the physical that when that moment comes, you believe it too. You, you can kind of put yourself in Karis's mindset and, and, be convinced by that lie in the same way that he's almost convinced by it. It's a really masterful bit of of filmmaking and something that Friedkin isn't really showy about. It's just the way that he has chosen to work with his editor to put this film together. It's just a really subtle but unmistakable bit of structural workmanship that works really well um i want to talk a little bit about the the cinematography in this film of course there's uh the really iconic shot of max von Sydow's uh, father marin pulling up out front of regan's home and you know it's kind of foggy and you get that silhouette of him looking up at the window um but there's Something in the cinematography elsewhere, uh, by Owen Roysman, who's the the director of photography on this film, that is maybe a little bit different. More more different than I was expecting, I guess, from having seen other movies about demons and demon possession, kind of spiritual darkness, where they tend to really play up the, you know, the darkness in the lighting and in the set construction. And in this film, it doesn't really follow. ...that scheme so much. Roisman really actually shoots a lot of the scenes with Regan in pretty matter-of-fact lighting. There's light, you know, regular bedside table lamps in the room, or there's daylight coming in through the blinds. And it's all kind of -of matter-of-fact in its depiction of the horrible spiritual struggle going on in this little girl. I thought that was very effective.
1: Yeah, and it kind of goes back to what you mentioned before this idea of telling a story that can happen in the mundane part of life, that this is just, this is just what she feels like an average girl. She plays with a a Ouija board and somehow the door gets opened and evil creeps in to our normal lives. And so I I thought that that was, yeah, like you mentioned a, a, an effective way to shoot the film. I, I do want to go back to kind of Martin's comment, uh, he leaves with hope. And I, I think, uh, this film really does, I think, strike a balance between, um, sadness and hope. You have, the two priest characters, Max von Sydow, he passes away. Jason Miller's priest character passes away at the end. Uh, and he does so by basically uh, through self-sacrifice. He takes the evil upon himself. And it says something about the nature of the priesthood, uh, the nature of ministers in general, uh, taking on this evil for the sake of the individuals. But then it's also connected to... Uh, our ultimate high priest and that's Jesus taking on that evil and dying for us. Now, there's not necessarily a direct comparison. Uh but I left the film a uh, thing to myself. Okay, yeah, there there is there is hope through the work of Jesus but also through the individuals that he has empowered around us. So, it is a dark film, um but I I agree with with Martin's uh, comment in that article. Yeah, there's
0: uh something that Blatty himself uh said about the film uh or or maybe it was about th- just the story in general. Um when he he said that people kind of bring their own baggage into the exorcist. And if you are the sort of person who finds hope in God and in God's sovereignty and you know doesn't know, knows that spiritual darkness is real, but doesn't necessarily fear, live in fear of spiritual darkness, then those that sort of person will watch the exorcist and come away with that hope that uh, Martin mentioned in, in his piece. Uh, Blighty likewise said that somebody who comes in who doesn't really have that kind of appreciation for the spiritual realm or is more of maybe of a, of a materialist will come away from... The Exorcist much more disturbed and maybe even despairing and, and thrown off by it, the way in which you know two essentially innocent priests die as a result of this, this possession. And I think that's a really insightful comment on his part because it, it reveals essentially the fulcrum on which this story turns, which is the apprehension that spiritual darkness is real, but it also doesn't win the day and that um it can be essentially completely wiped away by father caris's sacrifice it's a very catholic idea that the priest is the one who takes who takes on the demon and essentially absolves regan of everything that Uh, the demon did through her there's a lion dialogue at the end says you know she remembers nothing she doesn't remember the possession she doesn't remember the people who died because of the demon she's essentially free and there's something about a priest being involved in that process that is very catholic and even if you're not catholic something that's very very christian the idea that somebody can take your darkness onto himself and, and and make it clear and that's uh i think kind of for me at least, what this movie really boiled down to.
1: No, I, I think that's a great observation, and uh, it's a great way to, I think, to describe this movie. Listeners, that is our review of The Exorcist from 1973. Let us know what you think of the movie. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Some of you, maybe you've never seen it, and some of you are trying to work up the courage to do so. So we'd love to hear about those experiences. Once again, tweet us at SeabeliefPod, Seabelief Pod, P-O-D, on Twitter, You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Kevin, we have reached the part of the show where we recommend something from the world of television and or film to our listeners. What would you like to recommend this week? Well, um, The Exorcist isn't the only film
0: that I uh, watched this October kind of trying to get into the Halloween spirit. I recently saw another film that just completely blew me away. And that's 1961's The Innocence, directed by Jack Clayton. This is a, a film that uh, is based on the Henry James novella, The Turn of the Screw. It's a ghost story about a governess who goes to this secluded country estate to take care of two young children. And then she comes to suspect that not only is the house haunted, but that the ghosts are focusing their attentions on the two innocent children under her care. It stars uh, Deborah Kerr. It's been it's co-written by Truman Capote. It's got this incredible cinematography by Freddie Francis. This is probably one of the most visually. Amazing horror films I've ever seen. Uh, It's just the black and white cinematography is just absolutely stunning. And this is one of those horror films where it is a lot more about getting inside your head about the psychological more so than it is about showing lots of spooky things. And I think that's why it got under my skin so effectively. So if you're looking for a ghost story that's got a more classic feel, uh, I don't think you could do much better than, uh, The Innocents.
1: I've heard a lot about that movie and I haven't had a chance to, to watch it yet, but, uh, maybe I'll get around to it here soon in October. That's a, it's a very good pick. I, I kind of went in a different direction. Uh, so if you, you can have this dark, moody movie. I went to a film uh, starring Angelina Jolie that I that I really like and I think she does well and it's the 2010 film Salt. It's directed by Philip Noyce. And this is, you know, this is one of those movies that's just a pretty good action film. I I'm not going to overvalue it or talk it up too much. It's just a really entertaining movie. Angelina Jolie is the CIA agent and she goes on the run after someone accuses her of being a Russian spy. So you kind of get everything you need in a good spy action movie with that premise. So there's some heart in it. And um, it's a movie that I've, I've watched a couple times and I've genuinely been entertained. So if you want to check out more of Jolie's work and you haven't seen the, uh, the film salt yet from 2010, make sure to check that out.
0: I've heard that that's a a really fun spy thriller, uh, almost in a way a throwback to the, the kinds of action movies that, were were more common, but I haven't seen it yet. So maybe maybe this will be the the prod I need to to get around to it. Yeah.
1: We should start a list of just our recommendations. I think that'd be uh, be great. But yeah, I know it's I I think it's a I think it's a really good film. Listeners, that is the end of our show. Make sure to rate and review us on iTunes. We very much appreciate that. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters and Christinpopculture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clawson, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. We'll be back next week with some fun stuff. For now, I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been
0: listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at ChristinPopCulture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.